Listener supported. WNYC Studios. It's politics with Amy Walter from The Takeaway. This week, long-simmering tensions within the Democratic Party erupted into full view. Well, the fireworks didn't stop on July 4th in the Democratic caucus up here on Capitol Hill. Now, Pelosi told New York Times it proves that they have a following in their Twitter world. And AOC accused Pelosi of outright disrespect for repeatedly singling out women of color. I've been pretty shocked with the concentration of power internally. Congress used to function in a way where each member used to have much more power as an individual than they do now. I said what I'm going to say. With all due respect, I don't, maybe you didn't hear what I said. The progressive wing, often embodied by freshman Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Ayanna Presley, Rashida Tlaib, and Ilan Omar, had been at odds with the party's leadership before. But whatever differences existed between House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and the squad, as the four Congresswomen are called, there's always been a thin veneer of lip service aimed at the idea of party unity. Until now. It does feel like the water boiled over this time, if only because it was the first time that Ocasio-Cortez actually responded. That's Ryan Grimm. He's the D.C. bureau chief at The Intercept and the author of We've Got People, From Jesse Jackson to AOC, The End of Big Money, and The Rise of a Movement. Pelosi had kind of poked her a number of times in the past. She'd called the Green New Deal the Green Dream or whatever. She said a glass of water. Water would win with a D next to its name. (laughs) In New York 14, the Bronx and Queens. This has been her posture toward these new insurgent candidates since they got there. The latest dust-up started last weekend when Pelosi, in an interview with the New York Times columnist Maureen Dowd, dismissed the freshman lawmakers as being nothing more than four votes, despite their public whatever. AOC responded in a tweet saying that the public whatever is called public sentiment. And one of the reasons tensions are at an all-time high right now concerns the continuing migrant crisis at the border, which, despite that public sentiment, didn't turn out the way the squad or the speaker had intended. House progressives said, if you're going to throw a ton of money at these concentration camps on the border, then you're going to have to put in some requirements with teeth that the children that are being kept there are going to be kept under somewhat humane conditions. But that's not what happened. The Senate passed a different version of the bill without the protections, and the conservative-leaning Democratic Problem Solvers Caucus threatened to pass the Senate's bill with or without Pelosi's support. Pelosi got on board despite the outrage from the squad. Then, at a Democratic Party closed-door meeting on Wednesday, Pelosi warned House Democrats not to take shots at one another on Twitter, which many saw as an implicit rebuke to the progressive wing. Ryan Grimm argues that what makes these progressives so formidable is the fact that they don't need to win the favor or the political backing of the Democratic leadership. Pelosi and the DCCC didn't have anything to do with them winning, uh, and so they're kind of their own power center. What do you think of the contention that Pelosi's skill as a speaker is how well she has been able to hold her caucus together and that she's been the most effective Democrat in thwarting Trump? Well, thwarting him in doing what? I think Pelosi has uh, done a lot over her career that she deserves a lot of credit for. You know, so not only was she the first female speaker of the House, she, she pushed Obamacare through. These are all, you know, serious accomplishments, which is what makes this such a strange legacy play that, you know, in one of her last terms, she's going to make kind of a signature issue of hers, 
going after these young women of color who are kind of the future of the party. It just seems like a strange move from somebody who is generally such an impressive kind of tactician and strategist. You make this point that the challenge for Democrats right now is that the leadership is sort of stuck in the 1980s and that they need to think very differently. How would that work? What would it look like? What it would look like is kind of the way that Republicans do it. It it would say, you know what? The other party doesn't agree with us ideologically on much of anything. So all of our big agenda items, we're going to have to do them in a a partisan way. The idea that, that Obama came in with, it wasn't crazy to think like this when he did, but he thought, okay, historically, all of the big moves that have been made forward, the Great Society, the New Deal. Yes, they were led by Democrats, but they had Republican buy-in. And if you want them to, to be lasting, then you need some Republican buy-in. And so they tried desperately to get any Republican. Olympia Snow voted for the Affordable Care Act in the Finance Committee, and they threw a parade. They'd gotten their, their bipartisan bill. Uh, but but it proved that it was impossible to get them on board for that. And so, you know, when, when you're doing appropriations and when you're doing the small minor legislative things, you, you can, there's still bipartisanship that happens on Capitol Hill. But for the big items, the parties are going to have to do it alone. If you're looking to the way Democrats acted when they were in power in the 80s versus now, what's similar, what's different? And wh- why do you argue in your piece that Reagan is this sort of looming figure within in the back of every right. Democratic leadership. You know, the folks in Democratic leadership is in the back of their mind. Well, the, the postures are very similar. And actually, the people are, are quite similar. Chuck Schumer elected in, in 1980. Steny Hoyer elected in 81. Uh, Pelosi was a party operative in the 70s and 80s and, and eventually came to the Congress in 87. And it's difficult to overstate just how traumatizing that 1980 election of Ronald Reagan was, because not only did the White House incumbent get ousted by a C-list clown of an actor, this came after the midterms of 1978, in which Newt Gingrich and the kind of far right kind of first started rising, this, this new right. And in the Senate, they lost 12 seats, which is an extraordinary wipeout. And these were liberal lions. These were champions of the progressive and liberal agenda over the entire 20th century. So it felt like this utter repudiation that the world that they had come to understand as kind of a New Deal democratic America didn't exist. And in fact, we're a conservative country. It's a center-right country. And if you want to hold on to any modicum of power, you've got to moderate yourself. And so, you know, from from there, uh, they kind of restructured the party to go from one that was kind of more uh, people-oriented to one that was oriented more around corporate cash because they looked at the way that they lost in 1980 and they said, oh, the only problem here was that Republicans outspent us on TV. So we need better consultants and we need more money. And so they, they went to corporate America. 1982, they had some big wins. Uh, 84, they get wiped out and, and re-traumatized. And they have been in that defensive crouch ever since. People like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, born in 1989, you know, she, was, she was a baby and Reagan was already out of office. So she has seen an utterly different world that has formed her politics. We are debating which is the right strategy. But it seems to me that the Warren, Sanders, Ocasio-Cortez wing has basically won because we're talking about constantly the issues that they put to the fore. Nobody on the Democratic primary stage could not talk about Medicare for all or the Green New Deal, free college, mm-hmm. 
$15 minimum wage. Is it enough that the quote-unquote squad has really set the agenda? Well, it's certainly not enough, but it's definitely something, and, it, and it's something new. You know, Democratic presidential debates weren't always like this. You know, they, a lot <laughs> no, of- I've never seen a freshman member right. of Congress have as much influence, not just within Congress, mm-hmm. but the debate at the presidential level. Which is what's strange about uh, Speaker Pelosi's response to this, because you, you could look at that and say, wow, this is the first time in 30 years that the, the left is helping to drive the conversation in the United States. Let's examine this. Let's figure out what it is about their messaging that is that has finally cracked the code so that the, the media actually wants to talk about uh, you know, what they're interested in. Instead, there's this frustration that the media is talking about that agenda rather than the messaging bills that the House has been passing. That examination probably would result in some hurt feelings. It's a fundamental threat to the way that the Democratic Party currently operates. When, when Pelosi was asked by reporters if she was confident that she was going to be reelected as speaker, she said yes. And they said, why? And she said, because I'm the best fundraiser, which is undoubtedly true. She's extraordinary at raising big money. But if as a party, raising big money is no longer the thing that you're organized around, and instead you're organized around registering unregistered voters or turning out people who didn't vote in the past or raising uh, small dollars or, or building up some type of uh, political structure that's going to be lasting, then the skill set of being able to raise big dollars isn't as valuable. And she herself said, the reason I'm going to be speaker is because I can raise big dollars. And so here comes Ocasio-Cortez and Bernie Sanders and Warren saying, no, that's actually the wrong way to do politics. I don't think we can underestimate how much of a threat that seems like to somebody who hasn't made her career since the 70s on that skill. Brian Grimm, thank you so much for joining me. It's great to be here. I want to replay something Ryan Grimm just said. This is the first time in 30 years the left is helping to drive the conversation in the United States. And that's something that worries my next guest. You know, what you saw on the debate stage was the Democratic Party just careening to the left, promising a bunch of free things without any real strategy for getting these things done for the American people. Congressman Seth Moulton is a Democratic candidate for president, but he didn't qualify for the first round of debates. I asked him what he meant by careening to the left. Well, I think a lot of Americans felt that watching uh, and listening to the debate, that um, that there's sort of a competition to appeal to the party base while forgetting a lot of Americans that we have to win over if we're going to if we're going to have a majority in this election. And and, you know, it comes through with certain issues like, for example, health care. I'm the only candidate in this race who actually gets single-payer health care because I made a commitment to continue going to the VA, even as a member of Congress, because I said if my fellow vets are going there and it's messed up and I'm in a position to help fix it, then I'm going to see it for myself. So I go to the VA, and you know what? It's not all that great. I've seen the good, the bad, and the ugly of single-payer health care through the VA. The good is that the VA negotiates prescription drug prices, which Medicare does not. But the bad is that I got sent home from surgery once with the wrong medications. And the ugly is veterans dying on waiting lists or not getting to see the mental health care professionals they need before they commit suicide. 
that's not a system that I think we should force on every American. I'm with President Obama, where every American deserves health care, but we should have a public option, an optional public plan that competes with private health care plans and may the best plan win. That competition is good for the system. Were you surprised to see almost every hand raised when asked the question of whether to decriminalize crossing the border? Yes. Because I'm on day one of my administration, I would say there will be no kids in cages. There will be no family separations. I'm not going to wait for some law to be changed to make sure that that happens. But do you think we should decriminalize border crossing? I want people to come to America legally, and I want them to be encouraged to come here legally rather than have this debate about decriminalizing, you know, crossing the border illegally, <laughs> right? Let's just encourage people to come here legally by fixing our asylum system, by making sure that people get their cases judged right away, and they can either get jobs and go on our tax, uh, tax, you know, pay taxes like the rest of us, because they're they are legally legally here, because coming here through asylum is legal if you're if you are legitimate, or they're sent home right away, but they're not kept in limbo. Let's make sure that we actually strengthen the border where it needs to be strengthened at, at border crossings, where we do have a lot of illegal drugs coming through, but not building a silly concrete wall in the middle of the desert. Let's make sure that when we have immigrants come here as students on student visas that learn from our insti- our educational institutions, our universities, that we don't then send them home with their degrees to use their education, their American education in China to compete against us. These are sensible immigration reforms that we need to do. I think that just simply saying it's, you know, it's totally fine to come here illegally is not the message that we want to send to America. It's not the message we want to send to the rest of the world. I have more of an existential question to ask oh you boy. about. Here well, we no, just looking at the House, me- we have a n- number of House members running this year, yes. which is a new yeah. thing. Usually you don't see members of the House running, nonetheless, this many. And what I also noticed is you've got a number of you who got to Congress in sort of non-traditional ways. You either beat incumbents, Beto O'Rourke mm-hmm. beat an incumbent, you mm-hmm. beat a Democratic incumbent. Right. You beat a sitting Democratic incumbent, Eric Swalwell, mm-hmm. who obviously has dro- since dropped out, but he beat an incumbent. You've challenged the leadership in your party, as Tim Ryan did from Ohio. What do you think this says about where members are coming from, or why is it that the members who are, in some cases, the outsiders, right? They challenged the right. system and now are running for president. What does that mean? Because I think that we all believe that the status quo isn't good enough. That, that we need to move America forward. And there's a debate right now in the party about how to do that. Yeah. You know, one of the things you saw on the debate stage is a, is a group of Democrats saying, we need to totally upend the system, basically remake America from its foundations. And, and I, I don't think that's right. I think this has always been a great but imperfect country. But I think our fundamentals, our values, our constitution are strong. There's another group of people who just kind of want to go back to the way things were. I don't think that's right either. I think what we need is an update. You know, it's sort of like America is running on Windows 95 right now. And um, you're certainly, you're sitting here with your, with your Apple laptop. You're certainly not running Windows 95. We all know that America's just kind of fallen behind. And we don't need to completely change our fundamental foundations, but we do need an update. And that needs to happen now. If we do wait, we're just going to leave more Americans behind. I think that's the sense of urgency that you see with some of us who who looked at our home districts and said, I'm not going to wait for this guy to retire. I think we can do better today. I'm not going to just wait for our party leadership to retire. They've been here for a combined total of about 100 years. Like, let's get some debate here. 
and and that's healthy for the party. Well, let's talk about that because that debate seems to be happening. You had argued for a while that Nancy Pelosi, other members of the leadership, needed to step aside, let a new generation come forward. Obviously, Nancy Pelosi won re-election as speaker, but we're now seeing this tension with these new freshman members, again, many of whom beat sitting incumbents, to uh, Democratic incumbents, to get their jobs, like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Do you feel like you've been vindicated in your message that the leadership was out of touch with this generation? It's not a, I don't think about being vindicated or not. But I've argued since the very beginning, since my first campaign, that it's time for a new generation of leadership in our politics. And it's why I worked so hard to get so many new young voices into Congress. And I focused on the the seats that we needed to win to flip the House. Uh, These are um, people like Mikey Sherrill, Alyssa Slotkin, um, Abigail Spanberger. Those are three fellow veterans who won really tough seats that we needed to take back to to flip the House. And and once I got here, I said, look, I want them to have a voice in our politics, too. As a result of that debate, you know, we got some good things. We got the climate change subcommittee. We got the voting rights subcommittee. Uh, We got an agreement on term limits from from leadership that um, that will ensure these voices uh, rise up in the future. But I do think that there's this urgency out there. And there's a reason why uh, American voters picked the most young, diverse, incredibly vibrant freshman class we've ever seen in the House of Representatives. And we want to make sure that, that we actually live up to that to that call. But that tension is also apparent as well, not just between Pelosi and what folks are calling the squad, those younger members who are getting a lot of attention, Ocasio-Cortez, Tlaib, but the, the members that you mentioned in those swing, tough right. Republican districts aren't getting a whole lot of attention And the worry is that the focus and the messaging and the policy agenda of the more liberal members is making it harder for members that you worked for in those swing districts to get reelected. Do you buy that? I I do think there's a there's there's tension there. And And it's important to remember that um, Representative Ocasio-Cortez is 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 great. She's offering some great ideas. I just had a nice conversation with her yesterday about post-traumatic stress, for example, and mental health care. But. It's important to remember that you know she she took out a, a a Democratic incumbent, so didn't flip a seat, didn't help us win back the House in the way that people like Abigail Spanberger and Mikey Sherrill and Alyssa Slotkin did, and um, and also Max Rose and Jason Crow and, and and a whole bunch of other folks who really won in really tough districts, in districts that are going to be hard to hold on, and if we want to maintain the majority, so that. Members like the squad you refer to have a voice, have a have a chance to actually get a vote on some of the policies that they want to put forward, regardless of whether they pass. Then we got to make sure we hold on to the majority, and that should be our top political priority. Talk to me a little bit about your plans going forward. There is a debate at the end of July. Do you expect to be on the stage there? You know, we've met the polling criteria from the DNC in nine different polls, but they. The latest thing they've told us is they're not counting those nine polls. I don't know what that means exactly. Um, and I don't think it's a great idea to, uh, you know, exclude a combat veteran from this um, from this debate. I think that these views need to be a part of the debate on 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 stage there. But you know what? If that's what their rules are, then then fine. Um, what matters is not what the Democratic National Committee establishment in D.C. says. It's what the American voters say. 
and my message is resonating on the ground. When I go to, to, to the early states, like I was in Nevada over the 4th of July, I was in New Hampshire this past weekend, um, I'm getting a great response. I'm getting people who say, this is the kind of leadership we need to bring the country together and to move us forward. This is the kind of leadership in, in tough, divided times that we need to win this election and to go toe-to-toe with Trump, Donald Trump on the debate stage. And I think that's what Democrats ultimately want in a nominee. So as long as I still get that positive response on the ground from the voters who are actually going to make this decision, uh, I'm going to keep plowing ahead. You could also make the debate stage by getting a certain number of donors, contr- individual donors contributing to your campaign. Are you close on that metric? We're, we're moving in the right direction, um, and uh, we're certainly getting closer every day. But, you know, that kind of metric plays to a certain part of the party that responds to the flashing light emails that doesn't always represent everybody in the Democratic primary electorate. I was down at a church in South Carolina, great black church with a wonderful preacher and um, amazingly engaged con- con- congregation. And the, the preacher talked a little bit about my background of service and and why I'm running for president. And, and a whole bunch of people came up afterwards and wanted pictures with me. I said, you know, if you don't mind, you know, put these on Facebook and share with your friends. And they, they looked at me and said, we, we don't have Facebook. You know, we don't even have internet access. And how are they going to make online contributions? So by having metrics like that, we're leaving a lot of Democrats out of this conversation. And, and I think that's a Democratic Party mistake. Congressman Seth Moulton, thanks so much for coming and hey, talking with thanks me. thanks for having me. This was great. We just heard from Representative Seth Moulton, who told us about some of his concerns regarding the push left within the Democratic Party and what it could mean for Democrats in 2020. He's not only worried about nominating a Democrat who can beat President Trump, he's worried about his colleagues who sit in vulnerable districts and risk losing the majority control of the House. At the end of last month, I was at the Aspen Ideas Festival and I talked to someone who understands how difficult it is to be a Democrat from a red state. I think it's important that I lay down some street cred on this. You know, I grew up in a town called Manador, North Dakota. It's a town of 90 people when I grew up there. No, it's not 90,000 for all of your listeners who think that's a small town. It's 90 people, and my family was one-tenth the population. That's former Senator Heidi Heidkamp of North Dakota. Heidkamp lost her seat in 2018 to Republican challenger Kevin Kramer. I asked her what people need to understand about rural America, and she had some things she wanted to clear up. I grew up in a family that was really interconnected with that community. My, my dad built the ballpark. He built the, literally built the park system and, and fixed furnaces for everybody and made sure that Mrs. Poster had her shovel walk so she'd go to church every day. And so I think there's a, a romanticism that people have about rural America that, um, that only only in rural America does that happen. And I've lived in every place, and every place that I've lived, I've known my neighbors, and they've been good people, and they would give you the shirt off their back and watch your house for you and take out your garbage whenever you need your garbage taken out. And, and, and so I'm not one of these people who says this is the real America. So I just want to lay that down. But I think it's misunderstood America because people look at voting patterns, they look at you know poverty levels, they look at what's 
seems to be kind of a throwback to a different time, and they assume they know what is rural America. And I think over the years, the Democratic Party has distanced itself from those challenges and has really focused on building a base in urban and suburban America. And that has cost them dearly. I am convinced it cost them the last presidential election and in many ways has cost them the Senate. And this movement to the left which which we can argue about whether that's a good electoral strategy. It's a bad strategy in rural America because rural America tends to be um, more conservative, not selfish conservative, but just more conservative. You pay your bills, you do what you're supposed to do. And, and, and to me, one of the things that we haven't understood well is the economy of rural America, but also the culture of rural America. And if you're going to get voters to vote um, uh, with you, you've got to understand these issues and actually speak to the challenges. And as I said, you can't just talk the talk. You've got to walk the walk. You've got to show up, and you can't show up empty-handed. But you did show up. I mean, I met voters yeah. from North Dakota who said, oh, I love Heidi. Oh, yeah, you're going to vote for her this year? Yeah, no. But she's great. She's done great stuff, yeah. right? So that you could be liked in your community and yet still lose despite the fact that they knew you. Donald Trump won North Dakota by 36 points. I lost North Dakota by 10. So if the Democratic Party can just speak to half of the folks who are willing to take a chance on me again in rural America, they can be incredibly successful in places like Ohio. Wouldn't give up on Ohio. I do not give up on Iowa. I don't give up on Wisconsin, New Hampshire, which I think could potentially be in play. I think we have to be really careful about thinking that there's only three states that we have to worry about. The most important thing I can tell to my colleagues who are running for president is you don't have to change your message about what's important in this country. You do have to look at different strategies and solutions for rural America. But what a cab driver in New York wants uh, from his government or her government is not that dissimilar than what a small business owner in rural America wants. What I would hear throughout the 2018 campaign, what I continue to hear right now, are folks either in rural areas or really ag-based areas that say they don't like the tariffs, where immigration is a really important issue for them. They need the workers. The president is not helping. Not only is he not helping make their lives better, but they're markedly worse. He's, he's being reckless right. with their economy. And yet they continue to give him the benefit of the doubt. And it seems to me that the issue really isn't so much policy. It's the same thing. It's identity, that he's looking out for us and the Democratic Party isn't because they're spending too much time worrying about immigrants and people who identify as gay or lesbian or things like that. Yeah. I don't, I mean, yeah, I honestly think that that the, 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 that when you look at a 36-point differential, um, that is enormous, and it's driven by people who really like Trump. It's driven by people who historically have just voted Republican, and it's driven by people who didn't like the alternative. The people who didn't like the alternative, I would say, are, are potential Obama um, uh, Trump voters. And, and the question is, how do you get those people to move back? I'm not saying we're going to win rural America, but I'm saying there's incredible opportunities because this administration, and not, not to win it, but to, to, to move the dial, because this administration has done things, many of which you've just recounted here, that have not been economically good for people. And, and I think that once, once you raise the, the specter of character, 
You may not get people who like the bravada and like the tough talk, but you will get people who don't like lies, who don't like you know family advantage because of the position that you have, who don't like um, uh, chaos. I you know I had a I have a, a funny saying. I, someone said, "Well, what would you be saying if you're?" running for president. I said, make government boring again. We're just all exhausted. And I think middle America's exhausted as well. And so to me, um, we don't know how successful we're going to be at this. But I do know that one year of tariffs and bad commodity prices, this year, we're going to see it again. And they're not going to get a crop because of what's happening with flooding. It's been good for corn prices, because obviously, when you take corn out of production, prices, prices rise. But at the same token, these are the same family farms that have gone through the grain embargo and saw that market loss forever. And soybeans are a major crash crop. In many years in North Dakota, they're number one. And 90% of our soybeans go out the Pacific Northwest, almost all to China. It's interesting. I want you to describe what you mean when you talk about the Democratic Party moving to the left. In some ways, when I think about places like North Dakota or Minnesota, where you had a populist, sure. right? I mean, we own a bank. The, that's the right. yeah, think about that. North Dakota, uh, proudly, proudly right? run by Republicans. They're proud of it every day. It used to be, it used to be, and it, it, that's the realignment on populist issues. Right. So, is an Elizabeth Warren message then going to appeal in those communities? I, I think that, that the biggest mistake that uh, Senator Warren's making in terms of broadening appeal is free stuff. Um, by that, I mean, I kind of called it the Santa Claus plan, which is I'm going to, or maybe it's a Robin Hood plan. I'm going to take from the, those people and I'm going to give it to you. People, even if they're struggling, they want to earn what they have. I think that's a universal desire. They want a level playing field, but they want to earn what they have. And I think the other piece of it is that people are cynical about politicians um, because for too often they've heard promises that'll never happen. That was former Senator Heidi Heitkamp. Coming up, we remember Ross Perot and the influence his 1992 campaign had on 2016 and a conversation about citizenship how connecting at the community level could chip away at our divisions. Hi, I'm Alexis Ohanian. You may know me as one of the co-founders of Reddit, but more recently, a large part of my identity is being a father to my wonderful daughters. In my podcast, Business Dad, I hope to open the conversation about working parents a bit. You'll get to hear from a wide range of business dads, from Rain Wilson and Guy Raz to Todd Carmichael and Shane Battier to find out how they balance being a dad with a successful career. Business Dad is available now, so be sure to listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Takeaway Podcast, five stories you need to know more about every day. Putin would like to see the liberal world order fall apart. People of color have always understood that the American dream was a fantasy and an ideal. There is a crisis of institutional decay in our country. The risk of sea level rise is going to sink us before the seas ever do. May your rage be a force for good. For a daily podcast that breaks through the noise, subscribe to The Takeaway Podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, just for the record, uh, I don't have any spin doctors. I don't have any speech writers. Probably shows. 
I make those charts you see on television even. That shows you don't care about anything but making money. There will be a giant sucking sound going south. A great young lady from Louisiana sent me this voodoo stick. Well, they've got a point. I don't have any experience in running up a $4 trillion debt. And there is a tooth fairy and there is an Easter bunny. Like a crazy ant in the basement. Everybody knows she's there, but nobody talks about her. But see, I'm the only guy that talks numbers. I love this. Welcome back to Politics with Amy Walter from The Takeaway. Under the category of past is prologue, here's a question voters in the early 1990s were faced with. Could a wealthy businessman with no political experience use a cable TV platform and an anti-free trade message to make a serious run for president? Well, before the election of Donald Trump, Ross Perot gave it a serious shot, not once, but twice. And he did it as a true third-party independent outside the political machines that make up the left and right. There might not have been that first Donald Trump foray into politics, which was people forget he kind of ran for president in 2000. He walked up to the brink of running and then he decided not to. But what he was doing in 2000 was running for the Reform Party nomination. And the Reform Party was the product of the creation of Ross Perot. That's Steve Kornacki, national political correspondent for NBC News and MSNBC and author of the book The Red and the Blue. Earlier this week, Ross Perot passed away. The Texas billionaire made his fortune in computers and used his wealth to try to reclaim a piece of the political process that had been dominated by Republicans and Democrats. I talked to Steve about how Perot changed the game and set the stage for Trump's eventual rise. I, I think trade's the obvious overlap there. Trade and the idea of executive competence, the idea of I'm this singular, successful executive, business executive, and I'm going to go to Washington and I'm going to show them how things actually get done. And that was kind of the Perot message in 92. Another big, you know, Perot item in 92 was the deficit. And you know, the deficit was sitting at $4 trillion in 92. It's significantly higher now. It was the idea that Washington was completely failing and that, you know, Trump's message, I alone can fix it. That was essentially Perot's message in 92. Right. It's also an article of faith among many Republicans that the reason Bill Clinton was elected was because of Ross Perot. He appealed to that same Republican voter, especially white working class voters. What's the story? It's ultimately unprovable. I, I have to start by saying that. I have to acknowledge, you know, I can't prove they don't have a point. But I don't think they do. I, I think the George H.W. Bush cost himself the election in 92. I think the economy cost George H.W. Bush the election in 1992. I think there's a few pieces of context that get lost when this discussion comes up. Um, number one is just how weak Bush was before anybody heard the name Ross Perot in 1992. Ross Perot went on Larry King Live February 20th, 92, and that's when he said, hey, if the volunteers put me on the ballot in 50 states, you know, maybe I'll do this. Um, two days before that, before that ever happened, had been the New Hampshire primary. And in the New Hampshire primary, Pat Buchanan got almost 40% of the vote against George Bush, a sitting president. It was a shocking result. People were comparing it at that time to Gene McCarthy against LBJ in 68 in the New Hampshire primary that ended up knocking LBJ out of that race. That was Bush's political standing. His approval rating was in the 30s at that point. And then also Bill Clinton emerged from the Democratic primaries. The Bill Clinton who emerged from the Democratic primaries in the spring of 92 was carrying all sorts of baggage that was thought to make him unelectable. And then you find yourself looking up in the spring of 92 and Perot's in first place in the polls. And then, of course, Perot gets a spotlight and, and doesn't necessarily hold up that well against it. But I, I think the, the evidence to me suggests there were a lot of currents of discontent in 92. Since Russ Perot, though, there has not been a significant third party right. candidate. 
I have a theory. So Russ Perot, the most successful third-party candidate since Teddy Roosevelt, still only got 19%, was nowhere close to getting an electoral vote. What's happened since then is that outsiders recognized that it's really hard to win from the outside. They crashed the party, and I think that's spot on, and I think that is one of the key lessons Trump took from Perot. Where Perot didn't fit in with the Republican Party was on cultural issues. He was pro-choice on abortion. He put himself in a more moderate place than where the Republican Party was. Donald Trump comes along a generation later, and what's the first thing he does before running as a Republican? He changes his position on abortion. And I think Trump took the lesson you're talking about, realized, okay, the compromises I have to make here are i got to change on abortion. I've got to make an alliance with evangelical Christians. That's something else that was not necessarily natural to Donald Trump. And he made those kinds of compromises you're talking about. And we found out that, that a big chunk of the Republican Party was willing to make those compromises with him. What happened to the Reform Party? Obviously, Perot ran again as the Reform Party nominee in 1996. And now it's not in it's existence, gone. right? 2000, the Reform Party both basically died in 2000 and arguably is the reason George W. Bush got elected. And I say that because Pat Buchanan left the Republican Party in 1999 to seek the Reform Party nomination. He called the Republican process rigged. He started running for the Reform nomination, and that's when Trump stepped forward to challenge him. And Trump called Pat Buchanan an anti-Semite and a racist, and he said he was he was palling around with David Duke, and the Trump of 99 had big problems with that. Um, the fight never fully came to a head. Trump ended up backing out in February. Um, and so Buchanan, initially, the, the Bush campaign was terrified Buchanan was going to siphon big votes from them. By the time he got to the fall, Buchanan was barely mentioned. But his name, of course, was still on the ballot. In one big county in Florida, Democratic County, Palm Beach County, you had that butterfly ballot. And you suddenly had all these random votes for Pat Buchanan. And even Buchanan said this later. A lot of those voters thought they were voting for Al Gore. The names were right next to each other. That The arrows were right next to each other. It was a huge Gore County. In a state where the margin was 537 votes, you can argue that those accidental Buchanan votes handed the presidency to Bush. But as a political force, the Reform right, Party no, was that is, uh, <laughs> that is such a reminder of a, of a great system. That's basically 20 years ago that happened. After that, we heard barely a peep from Ross Perot politically. What did he do? He, I mean, he went back. Dallas, Texas is his base. Uh, his son um, sort of took over and, and expanded the, the the family business, but Perot remained active. Perot himself, Perot Sr., was still going in daily, I, I think until very recently. My sense, I don't know this, my sense, though, in, in, in looking at it was that Perot was sensitive to his legacy. I think he felt like he'd hit a peak in 92. He'd hit a peak getting 19% of the vote. Best for an independent since Teddy Roosevelt having those few months where it looked like he might actually win. And I think it was humbling for him in 96. I think he expected 96 would be a repeat of 92, and he didn't even get invited to the debates. My suspicion has been he felt like, I'm going to let the legacy of 92 speak for itself as much as I can and not alter that in any way. Steve Kornacki, thanks so much for coming in and talking with me today. Thanks, I enjoyed this. We've been talking a lot today about what divides us, the intraparty tensions on the left and the broader divisions that have all but cauterized communication between Democrats and Republicans. And while those involved in politics look for solutions through policy, what if we could somehow reconnect in a more old-fashioned way by getting together, listening to, and imagining other points of view? Before I get too righteous about presidential overreach and congressional diffidence, 
I'm obligated to ask myself, where was I when President Obama interpreted his power expansively? I didn't complain when he used executive orders or rulemaking authority to shut down polluters or to welcome undocumented dreamers or to advance the radical idea that financial advisors shouldn't stack the deck against their own clients. Why? Because I liked those outcomes. Perhaps I should have spoken up then, on principle. That sounds like a sermon to you. Well, that's because it is. But it's not a religious one. Eric Liu is CEO of Citizen University and executive director of the Aspen Institute's Citizenship and American Identity Program. His new book, Become America, Civic Sermons on Love, Responsibility, and Democracy, articulates this message to reintroduce the concept of citizenship at the community level in hopes of chipping away the divisions that wall us off from one another. When I talk about citizenship, when I say the name of our organization, Citizen University, um, I always take pains to say I'm not talking for the most part about documentation status under the immigration and naturalization laws of the United States. I'm talking about a bigger ethical conception of being a member of the body, a contributor to community. Eric is on a mission to transform the fundamental ways in which we interact with each other. Do you show up for other folks? Do you recognize that uh, you can't sever your fate off from that of everybody else? And uh, my view is that uh, citizenship, uh, broadly defined, uh, requires us, uh, no matter what our documentation status, no matter whether your family's been here a week or uh, several centuries, whether voluntarily or involuntarily came to this uh, land, that we have a responsibility to make sense of this inheritance uh, and figure out how do we live up to this set of ideals, uh, this creed uh, that actually constitutes the core uh, of American civic life. Well, has the term citizenship then been um, changing over time? You know, I think the the term for many years was just seen as this musty 50s Boy Scoutish term. But of course, in the last uh, couple of decades, uh, with the incredible uh, demographic shifts that are happening in the United States, uh, uh, people are increasingly anxious about national identity, about who is us. And so I think, you know, a lot of what we see right now in American conversations, you know, a lot of these folks who are fearful uh, of immigrants or refugees uh, or fearful that our borders are being corrupted or corroded, Um, They talk about citizenship not in the affirmative. They don't really talk about the responsibility side of it or the ways in which they aim to contribute to community themselves. They want to use citizenship as a cudgel, as a a club uh, to beat back outsiders. But I do think that uh, um, we ought to spend more time uh, thinking about this deeper ethical meaning of citizenship. Because in my view, there are a lot of people in this country who do not have the documents but live like big citizens. And conversely, there are a lot of folks in this country, many more, frankly, uh, who do have the documents but don't. Based on this conversation on community and citizenship and being a good member of the community, you started something called Civic Saturdays. Mm. And can you tell us a little bit about what that is? Yeah. So um, Civic Saturdays are this gathering that uh, my organization, Citizen University, uh, started doing in late 2016, actually four days after the presidential election. We began them in Seattle, and they've since spread all around the United States. And what a Civic Saturday is, is basically a civic analog to a faith gathering. It's not church, it's not synagogue or mosque, but it has the arc of a faith gathering, and it fundamentally is about what you might call American civic religion. Uh, And we come together in the spirit of uh, joyful ritual. And we, we started Civic Saturdays because we felt like one of the things that's missing in American civic life Um, is a space where people have permission 
an invitation to come together to try to make sense of things with people who might not all be like them. The people who come to these Civic Saturdays, you do these all across the country. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious about the people who show up to these events. Are these people who were already pretty civic-minded? Or have you noticed that there are people coming to these events who may never have really been engaged at all, whether in politics or their community or this process, mm-hmm. that they really are breaking out of a, of a silo? Uh, it's a mix of all of the above. Uh, of course, you have people who are regularly engaged and are looking for a new space to you know, find others and build power and, uh, and be part of something greater than themselves. But I'm struck most by how many people are coming for whom this is the first time they're showing up at a gathering like this, the first time they're stepping into a space of collective meaning-making or collective action. The thing that I'd add, actually, is uh, last year is we launched a civic seminary to start training catalytic leaders from communities all over the United States to lead their own Civic Saturdays. And I keep using the word invitation because I think it's so central to this moment right now. We need more invitation to get people out of their isolation, out of their social media feeds, uh, and back into the work face-to-face uh, of building trust and maybe some, maybe even some bonds of affection um, at the local level. Can we have a dialogue when our problems we feel are so different from other people that we can't possibly agree to tackle them together. So if you think about the life of your small town or the life of your neighborhood, wherever you may be in the United States, and you think about what it means actually to live in that community, um, for the most part, uh, even though the people in that community may have super strongly held views about climate change or about abortion or about some of these national or global hot button uh, divisive issues, at the local level, it's also the case that uh, uh, folks either are or are not going to get a handle on how growth is impacting um, the economy, uh, about whether people are getting displaced, about whether that displacement is leading to homelessness, about uh, whether the opioid epidemic, as it's playing out in your community, is actually getting addressed in more than just a lip service way. W- when we let all politics become national, we feed an ethos in which either we are just spectators watching the reality TV show unfold or we're just single-issue warriors um, who take no responsibility for the rest of the ecosystem. And and that's a bad set of habits, uh, and it's a set of habits that you can't really get away with in your town, in your block, in your neighborhood. Eric Liu is CEO of Citizen University and executive director of the Aspen Institute's Citizenship and American Identity Program. He's the author of Become America, Civic Sermons on Love, Responsibility, and Democracy. Here's a final thought for me today. For much of 2018, Democrats were on offense and Republicans were on their heels. The midterm election was a referendum on Trump, the failed Obamacare repeal attempt, and the GOP passed tax cut bill that Democrats pilloried as a giveaway to corporations and rich people. Democrats were a diverse caucus, but were unified by a desire to do what it took to win control of Congress. And they did. But now comes the hard part. The shared enmity of Trump by liberals and moderates was enough to win them the House, but not enough to keep them unified on a legislative agenda. Republicans found themselves in a similar spot after their successful 2010 midterm election. Now, there's nothing new about intra-party fighting. It's been around forever. When it becomes problematic, however, is when it divides a party so thoroughly that it makes it hard to unify at election time. It happened to Democrats in 2016, and many activists and Democratic leaders are worried it can happen again in 2020. 
giving Trump another term in the White House. Of course, back in 2016, many of us, me included, were convinced that the GOP primary process and ascension of Trump would divide the party beyond repair. But on Election Day, Trump took more than 90 percent of the Republican vote and has held that high level of support from his base ever since. Back in 2016, it was a strong dislike of Hillary Clinton that was enough to get many ambivalent Republicans to pull the lever for Trump. This year, the fear of a Trump reelect may be enough to keep an otherwise unsettled Democratic base united around the eventual Democratic nominee, no matter if they disagree with his or her policy and stylistic positions. We'll have to wait and see. Of course, call us anytime at 877 8 take or send us a tweet. I'm at Amy E. Walter, and the show is at The Takeaway. Thanks so much for listening. This is Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway. I love this.